Hello and welcome to The Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Uh, it is Easter Sunday and so today I want to reflect on that uh, Easter story. And so I'm going to read um, a portion of scripture that's not often read on uh, Easter Sunday, uh, but it's from the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going, that's two disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Well, the story of the two disciples journeying towards Emmaus is sometimes preached on the Sunday after Easter. However, the events take place on the same day as the resurrection and so it's appropriate for us to reflect on it today. Most Easter sermon series tend to stop with the glory of the resurrection, yet this short incident is, I think, critical to how we understand the resurrection. Although we're casually familiar with this story, it has captured the imagination of great artists. Caravaggio painted it twice, and Rembrandt, the master of biblical painting, returned to it many times. Theologian David Smith has noted that we are so familiar with how the story ends, we easily, easily overlook the context in which these events occur. He writes, When the story begins, there is absolutely no hint of the glory that will break into the darkness at its end. 
Indeed, the despair and utter hopelessness of the two disciples who withdraw from Jerusalem can hardly be exaggerated. Both their body language and their conversation are symptoms of people deeply depressed and traumatised by suffering. He suggests that in order to understand this story, we must try and block our knowledge of the story's happy ending. We have to begin the story with just the two disciples and the reality of the situation in which they found themselves and how it affected them. Accordingly, to understand the story, we have to engage in an act of imagination that places us alongside these broken people as they retreat to the countryside, escaping from the scene of the Holocaust that has shattered their faith in God and his Messiah and left them facing a future without horizons. The fact is that many people today, Christians and non-Christians, find themselves in a situation very much like these two disciples, walking away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus, with the same words echoing in their hearts, we had hoped. It's crucial, I think, that we take note of the fact that the risen Christ's response to their emotional and mental state is to meet them on the road where they are and to walk with them. This is what he does with us. He meets with us where we are and he walks with us. He doesn't appear in a blaze of resurrection glory, but incognito, unrecognised. The few times that I've heard passages, uh, sermons on this passage um, preached, the preacher has said that Jesus kept them from recognising him. But actually, I would, I would, we'll see that this is not the case. And the text never actually says it. Rather, I would suggest that it is their misplaced hopes, their wrong reading of scripture, that makes it impossible for them to recognise who it is who's joined them on the road. As he walks with them, he asks a question and so creates space within which his companions can unburden their hearts. The distraught disciples can hardly believe that there could be someone in the area of Jerusalem who's ignorant of the events of the last few days. And yet Jesus' question creates the opportunity for the release of a, a veritable flood of words as their pent-up grief is suddenly poured out in a confession of utter hopelessness. That hopelessness is emphasised by the repeated use of past tenses. Jesus was a prophet. The disciples had hoped. The grief and hopelessness of the disciples is real and deep. And Jesus gives them space to express it. As these two disciples are walking along the road, they engage in an intense discussion. The word that Luke uses suggests a debate that carries a sense of real emotional involvement. One of the most important phrases in the story is, we had hoped. For it sums up their whole emotional, mental and spiritual state. As David Smith writes, it hints at the unfulfilled dreams and shattered hopes that had occasioned their journey away from Jerusalem, where their faith and hope had turned to dust and ashes and towards Emmaus, westward with the setting sun echoing their mood. The question that their despair raises is, what was their hope that is now destroyed? Well, Cleopas tells us that they'd hoped that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. And notice that he comments that Jesus was powerful in word and deed. 
It's very likely that Jesus' miracle-working power only served to fuel speculation about who he was and what he was going to do. After all, if he had the power to feed a multitude, to command nature, to heal the sick and even to raise the dead, surely he would be able to conquer the Romans. Yet, instead of being hailed as Messiah and acclaimed as Israel's saviour and liberator, he had been dismissed and treated as a deceiver and a traitor. Little wonder then that Cleopas and his companion were trudging along the Emmaus Road, despairing and hopeless. When Cleopas said that their hope was that Jesus would redeem Israel, he was probably thinking in terms of the, the populist, triumphant nationalism that was common within Israel at this time. It certainly didn't occur to him that Jesus would redeem Israel and the whole world through his suffering and death on a Roman cross. The fact is that Jesus had not lived up to their expectations. I think that's the best explanation, not only for their sorrow, but also for the way that Jesus responds to them. Jesus' response to the disciples is rather surprising. For instead of offering soothing and comforting words to these people in their moment of hopelessness and sorrow and despair, he bluntly tells them that they're being foolish, that they're idiots. Furthermore, he implies that they're in part responsible for their own sorrowful condition because they've not believed all that the prophets had spoken. And here's the key to understanding the brokenness of these two disciples. They have not believed all that the prophets had spoken about Messiah. The clear implication of Jesus' rebuke is that their desperation stems ultimately from their acceptance of a fundamentally mistaken worldview that was based on a particular and highly selective reading of the Hebrew Scriptures. The reason that their hopes were dashed is that their hopes were all wrong in the first place. Theologian Christopher Stendhal once observed that our vision is more likely to be obstructed by what we think we know rather than by our lack of knowledge. Consequently, the journey on the Emmaus Road becomes a journey of healing because it creates space where these disciples, and perhaps us too, may look again at what we think we know in order to recognise the imperfect nature of our understanding of the ways of God in the world. All of us are guilty at times of interpreting the Bible based on the historical and cultural context in which our own thinking was shaped. As one theologian puts it, it's always the case that our particular situation shapes the kind of questions that we bring to the story. It's a common phrase in theology that all theology is biography. The disciples had interpreted the prophetic writings in a highly selective, culture-bound way that left them with a distorted view of the hope they expressed. They had hoped that the Messiah would be a conquering hero who would boot out the Romans and re-establish the throne of David in Israel. That was their hope, and that hope was a false hope, and no wonder that hope was dashed. And so Jesus widens their horizons by explaining from Moses to the prophets all that was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And I think that's also significant. Jesus doesn't give them special revelation or an astonishing vision. Rather, he explains what they have missed in the scriptures. 
Because the scriptures tell us that in the age of the Spirit, people will have dreams and visions and words of revelation and prophecy. I think the reality is that whilst that happens, it is more likely that for the majority of us, the Holy Spirit will widen our horizons by teaching us the truth of the scriptures more than by revelations, dreams and visions. I think that this issue is one of the for critical, of critical importance for the church today. The failure of many professing Christians to live Christ-like lives stems not simply from their stubborn refusal to allow the Spirit of Christ to change them and help them grow. I think it also comes from interpreting the Bible in ways that lend support to and reinforce our particular cultural, political, social and personal viewpoints rather than allowing the Spirit to use the Scriptures to change our perspective, to mould us and reshape us. I think, ironically, it was John MacArthur who said that the problem with the Bible is that you can make it say what you want. And like John MacArthur, we have. In the West, the Bible has been used to support a narrow blood and soil nationalism, the expansion of colonialism and imperialism. It's been used to make a sin out of smoking and drinking and dancing. It's been used to justify our addiction to consumerism. And it's within my own lifetime the Bible was widely used in the USA and South Africa to defend segregation of black people from white areas. And the Bible is still being used today to promote racism. Are we really so different from these disciples on the Emmaus Road? The truth is that we are as guilty of selectively misinterpreting the Bible as these two disciples were. Yet it's more than simply a matter of how we interpret the Bible. Our misinterpretations have led us to a distorted understanding of how God works in our lives and in the world. For God does not work by upholding our national or cultural values. He doesn't work by making sure we adhere to the rules of the religious establishment rather than the, the work he, rather he works through transforming our lives so that we become more like Christ and in order that through obedience to his commands we will be his hands and feet and his voice in the world. And he does that in ways that are like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, quiet, incognito, almost unnoticed if we're not looking. The story moves quickly to its climax as they arrive at Emmaus and Jesus makes as though he plans to continue on, but they urge him to stay with them. I think this is more than just a normal protocol of Eastern hospitality. I think they didn't want their conversation with him to end. It's when they share their meal together, something really powerful in Eastern cultures, that Jesus' identity is revealed to them as he gives thanks for the bread. And we should be careful to note that it has been in the context of intimacy and fellowship that their understanding about Jesus has been enlarged and that it's in that same context that they are given the revelation to know who their house guest is. The scales fall from their eyes and they can see. It's only then that they reflect upon their conversation with them on the road and acknowledge how their hearts burned within them as he spoke to them. And here is a vital issue for would-be disciples of Jesus in the world today. It is the issue of intimacy with Jesus. 
It's only in the context of an intimate, living, dynamic relationship with the risen Christ that we can have our understanding deepened and our horizons widened. The problem is that our churches are full of people who believe and confess all the right doctrines, but who no longer live in that intimate relationship with Christ. They're no longer being transformed day by day into his image. Has it been years since your heart burned within you as you studied the scriptures or is it still a chore now? Has it been years since your heart burned within you while discussing spiritual matters with other believers or do you not really do that anymore? The scriptures tell us that where two or three are gathered together, Christ is in their midst. But do we still feel his presence? Could it be that he is as hidden to us as he was hidden to those disciples on the road to Emmaus? The Catholic theologian Johann Baptist Metz encapsulates the heart of the problem when he writes, The crisis or sickness of the life in the church is not just that a change of heart is not taking place or not taking place quickly enough, but that the absence of this change of heart is being further concealed under the appearance of a merely believed in faith. Are we Christians really changing our hearts? Or do we just believe in a change of hearts and remain under the cloak of this belief in conversion basically unchanged? Are we living as disciples or do we just believe in discipleship and under the cloak of this belief continue in our old ways, the same unchanging ways? Do we show real love or do we just believe in love under the cloak of, and under the cloak of belief in love remain the same egoists and conformists we have always been? Do we share in the sufferings of others? Or do we just believe in this sharing, remaining under the cloak of belief in sympathy and as apathetic as ever? It's perhaps no wonder that the world around us, perhaps more than ever, has rejected the message of the church. It seems so devoid at times of reality in our own lives. David Smith tells a story of driving on the M8 through Glasgow and on a hillside uh, there was a, a church that had a banner that all the passing motorists could see. It said, save this landmark. And he noted that the people who organised the church restoration pro project must have missed the irony of the church being reduced to a landmark pleading to the world for salvation. I think it's only when we rediscover an intimate relationship with Jesus and have our horizons widened that we will reflect in a real and convincing way the message of hope that God has for the world. So that's the first thing the disciples did when they realised that Jesus truly had risen from the dead was to return to Jerusalem, even though it was really late by that time. And they just walked seven miles to Emmaus. They hurried back to Jerusalem to spread the news. You know, and the news that Christ has risen is from the grave is old news. And we neither have nor need any other message for the world. What we do need is the passion, vitality and burning hearts that come from living in an intimate and vital relationship with the risen Christ. However far we've come on the Emmaus Road away from Jerusalem, Christ is willing to meet us where we are and expand our horizons, to renew our vision and our passion. You know, someone once said that you're as close to God as you want to be. 
The only thing that's holding you back is you. Thanks for listening.